You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. front of the entrance to our inn, just before it was destroyed, Fabronia, our fifteen children, and myself. The infant in her arms is Thomas, with the disparate eyes. The other infant is Elizabeth. On the left is my brother Lucas with a horse, Memento, December 1899, lest we forget. This is what, in sloping but legible handwriting, Hesychios wrote on the back of a rectangular black-and-white photograph, teeming with smiling and anxious faces, all intently turned towards the lens, so that if we were to imagine so many bodies aboard a boat, we would be right to imagine that the boat might very well have sunk. Having good handwriting, he wrote the same thing on the back of numerous other photographs, simply changing the names, showing his brothers and their families, all taken more or less on the same day most of them now lost or hidden for another hundred years. That was a passage from chapter 3 of Zerona Zatelli's At Twilight They Return, a novel in ten tales, which was published in Greek in 1993. The book is translated by David Connolly and is published by Yale University Press. Set during the final decades of the 19th century, The novel tells the vivid and meandering history of several generations of a single family in northern Greece. As the modern world begins to encroach upon the ancient, the border between the mythical and the real becomes porous, and in Zatelli's hands, both are allowed to exist in a perpetual twilight. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this remarkable text. We hope you enjoy our discussion. So, welcome to episode four of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, really great, sir. Thanks, Sam. Glad to hear it, man. We're looking at a novel today called At Twilight They Return by Zerana Zatelli, published in 1993 in Greek and has just been released in a translation by David Connolly. Maybe I'll just ask you, Rob, first, how did you feel about reading this book what are your first impressions? I mean, I've said this to you already, but I think of all the of all the books we've been talking about and reading together, uh, this for me is is the first sort of masterpiece. Uh, it's just an absolutely amazing book. Uh, I don't know if that kind of strikes a chord with you as well. I was going to suggest using that word to describe this book. I didn't want to jump straight in with it, but that's definitely how I feel about it too. I mean, I, I absolutely love this book. It's quite unlike anything we've covered so far. It's much, much longer, isn't it, Rob? It's about 520 pages of quite dense print in a big doorstop of a hardback. So it's quite a lot harder to get to grips with than some of the things we've looked at. Were there particular things you enjoyed about it, Rob? It sounds very cheesy to say. As a novel, I want to say that it really spoke to me. And I sort of mean that in like every sense of the word. I found it incredibly compelling and, and a real joy to read. Uh, 
it's a lovely object you've said you know it's this it's this huge hardback that we both have and it's a really beautiful book there was this really incredible for me blend of mythology and folktale and kind of oral history but also the the tone of it it just felt like sitting down with someone for me anyway sitting down with someone and and really hearing this story directly from someone's telling and that just blew me away there are certain things I, I really love about it. I think I was saying to you, it has a certain fidelity to digression. It's a really kind of meandering book, but I think that's a huge part of its charm, the fact that it doesn't have this linear, overarching plot that you, you're following the whole way through, but jumps between periods, jumps between characters and consciousnesses, and even styles. At times it might be kind of straight-up realist at times it will be almost like a epic melodrama. There are patches of very dense, almost modernist prose in here as well. I suppose the thing to say about it is that if you were to describe it as a family saga set in northern Greece during the final decades of the 19th century, you would be right. You'd be fairly accurate in, in your description of it. But it's unlike any other family saga that I've encountered. That digression is is incredible and i i love that phrase the the fidelity to digression and it's such an incredible book to do i think what we're doing now and to take a step back and see how all its different parts form this incredible constellation reaching the end of this book was a real pleasure i mean i just want to reread it straight away but to begin to understand how how some of these parts come together it's certainly certainly not linear as you say even the the family structure within it isn't linear so in that sense it definitely breaks away from that, that tradition of a, of a kind of family saga. As I understand it, it seems to be a very well-known book in, in Greece. And um, Zatelli, as a writer, I think is one of the most prominent in Greece. But she doesn't seem to have much of a presence in even in literary journalism in England. And I've certainly not seen her name come up very much. I think in Italy... She's also very popular, and perhaps in France as well. But for our listeners who've never heard of her, maybe you could tell us something about her life, Rob. As you say, really doesn't seem to be that well-known in the UK or perhaps really in the English-speaking world. And as such, there's really not very much information about her at all. But I can tell you that she was born in 1951, and she's Greek, as we discussed, uh, born near uh, Thessaloniki. And for me, this is really important or it really shines through in the book, that she originally studied in drama school between 1976 and 1979, worked as an actress and a radio producer, and that, that last bit, for me, somehow kind of explains a lot of the tone of the book, and then becomes a full-time writer. And as you say, very, very famous in Greece. Uh, her novels have been awarded the National Book Prize for Literature in 94 and 2002. And then also in 2010, she was given a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Athens. So, yeah, definitely, definitely a huge figure. And I think reading this, although, of course, we're reading it in translation, but you can really understand why. It's an incredible undertaking. I find it amazing this book isn't more well-known because the translation seems... I can't say for sure because I can't read the original, but the translation seems amazing. Uh, I don't know if you felt the same as someone who's dabbled in translation yourself. It struck me that David Connolly's translation is really playful in its language and I imagine that's that involved lots of quite difficult decisions about how to render particularly the passages of dialogue where uh, you might have aspects of dialect or 
strange formulations or utterances that aren't exactly linguistic but there's there's a sort of joyous exuberance to the to the english in this book and as you said i can't really comment on the the greek original but that definitely seems to be an aspect of it just reveling in the pleasures of uh, different kinds of speech and different kinds of language different registers one thing i wanted to, to mention rob you said she was a radio producer i believe that she actually recorded an audiobook um for a radio program in in greece an audiobook version of this novel which was played over 76 episodes perhaps we'll include a short clip of it even though we don't we won't understand what she's saying rolf but it might be nice to hear her voice what do you think of that i'd be fascinated to hear her voice even if i couldn't understand what she was saying it's very deep raw sounding voice in in just about every picture of her she's smoking a cigarette and you can definitely hear <laughs> that in, in in her voice i think mythistorima se deca historias tis ziranas zateli iliki etsi kefi ora tous provalun apo oles tis merges ke ta matia tous in estilpna ke diistitika oso tipota Ηλίκη, όχι απαραίτητος ως εχθρή, μα ως ενέχειρα της μνήμης. Διαβάζει η Ζηράνα Ζατέλη. So I thought maybe we should start by saying something about the the family in the book which is essentially its main subject. The family whose surname we don't actually learn, is that right? Ah, yeah, I'd, I'd never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, it feels like names play an incredibly important role in the book, but they're people's first names and, and nicknames, but never, as far as I can remember, do you, do you ever learn the family name of this family? No, I don't believe you do, but um, they certainly seem to be a, a huge presence in this community. They're quite a well-to-do family and are the owners of a local inn in the village and later of a sesame oil um, processing factory. But their eccentricities make them a sort of source of fascination for the surrounding community. They seem to be incredibly prolific in terms of reproduction. They produce children in vast numbers they're uxorious they they seem to marry over and over again particularly christophoros who is the head of the family and the members of the family all seem to display a certain kind of mythical quality or they have very strong almost folkloric identities i'm thinking of uh, hesychios who's the son of Christophoros, he is said to be so beautiful that women are incapable of resisting his charms. Bezzatelli writes on page 14 that Hesychios' beauty uh, was now tantamount to some kind of menace, something catastrophic, and you do sort of see the effects of this, uh, this menace or this catastrophe throughout the whole book. But yeah, absolutely, it reads, it reads like something straight out of Homer or something, that women fall at his feet and... and die as a as a result of his beauty yeah i don't know if there was any any particular others that stuck out for you sam well uh, certainly thomas of the youngest generation that we encounter in the book he's born with disparate eyes so he has one green eye and one brown eye and p 
people around him are just mesmerized by this and they sort of barter with him in order to get a clear look at his face but he he won't let anyone look at him because he's so self-conscious about it and there's also Ephtha who has some kind of bizarre communion with with snakes and is able to charm them or to sense them hunt them down whenever there's a snake around that needs getting rid of they call Ephtha to to help them I also thought it might be worth saying something about Christophoros as he's the the head of this family and also his life somehow bookends the entire novel right he's the kind of backbone of this this novel somehow although we don't meet him in his in his youngest days he's the closest thing we have to a central character in a book with very much an ensemble cast i would say but i struggled to find a way to describe him rob you know a few qualities came to mind i was thinking about the fact that he's quite an earnest character and commands respect in the in the village what do you think is the kind of essence of of Christophorus? He certainly seems, yeah, like this this kind of benevolent patriarch. Zatelli describes him as as being very good at business, or at least that's how other people see him. And whatever he turns his his hand to, turns out to be a success. After the inn itself burns down, he decides to make this sesame oil mill and there seems to be a certainty that that's going to be a success. In the section where he takes his daughter to hospital, there's a real care there. You know, he's he's certainly not an aloof father. Well, it it strikes me that he is a little bit distracted, although he does care about the members of his family. In that chapter that you're talking about where they go to the hospital, he sort of leaves his daughter alone and almost forgets about her because he's gone shopping for a hat or something. Is that right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is very true, actually, yeah. And also, there is a darker side to him. He's quite violent with Cleisha, for example, who is his daughter-in-law. It appears that she might be romantically involved with this hunter. He actually grabs her by the hair and covers her mouth from behind, and it's the first time we see him acting with these kind of violent impulses. But on the whole, he does seem, as you say, to be a sort of benevolent, even-tempered character. But I suppose the important thing is that everyone in the family seems to look up to him and to take him as an authority and in some cases a role model. As the book follows him through to old age and and he quite clearly doesn't hold quite the same position within the family as he used to, there's certainly something very endearing about him. When we were doing our research for the episode, Rob, we talked a little bit about how the depictions of the characters in the book raised them to a, a mythological status, and the characters almost seem to mythologize each other. We talked about how every family has these sort of scraps of information that become legends and are, and are passed down, and you seem to think something like that was going on in this book is that right just how family members understand each other and and also preserve memory of um, generations that have passed away and i think zatelli captures that really wonderfully because the deeds of her her characters aren't necessarily hugely mythological you know there's characters who are able to conceive and and give birth 
long into their 50s having tens of tens of children but none of none of these things are in and of themselves mythic in their scale but the way she renders it preserves a kernel of a personality or or a particular way of being or acting which i feel is very familiar i think to anyone that might have funny stories about their family but it's also very very familiar from reading folk stories or or myths i think every family has things like this but for instance in my family the legend goes that my great-great-grandfather was some kind of prize fighter in in east london and had the nickname of Smoker Bigwood because he always had a fag hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> this is the only piece of information I have about this man, but it's ki- come to kind of form this whole picture in my mind of what he is. And likewise about my great-grandmother in Gibraltar who practiced mediumship and held seances and so on. Like you say, it's these kind of broad brushstrokes from which you ex- extrapolate something whole. And I feel like that may have been part of the the genesis of this book you know at a certain point in the narrative Satelli steps in with the the kind of authorial voice and and refers to an actual source of most of these tales and it's suggested at least that this is a late late generation of this family who's telling all these old tales and that, that soon they will die and these these tales will be lost so it definitely seems integral to the way that the book is formed a kind of extrapolation from these little details there's a prefatory note at the beginning of the book and it reads as follows if you take 10 dogs and let them loose in the wild in a wilderness through which no living soul passes then in less than a few weeks these dogs will revert to being wolves So someone said one evening, and motivated by the emotion and the associations complex in their immediacy that this remark had on me, I started to recall some old tales. This initial motivation was further strengthened as a kind of reverse reflection by the following lines from Paul Zalan's Totnauberg, Krudes später im Fahren deutlich. I'll just give... uh, the translation of those lines crudeness later while driving clearly you have two sort of opposing ideas here the idea that the tales that make up this volume have figured as dogs who have been let loose and turned into wolves and have reverted to a sort of wild state or are going out of control so maybe this is slightly schematic but i see that process that we were talking about in in that line rob zatelli has let her imagination loose on some of these true tales and that now they are kind of growing and being woven into a kind of vaster tapestry but then you have the reference to this Salan poem, which is its kind of reverse. So you have the idea of something crude taking a clearer form afterwards. I was reading an essay by one of Salan's translators about this poem, which is one that Salan wrote immediately after his meeting with Heidegger, quite, quite famously. Pierre Joris, the translator of Salan, has this to say about that poem. The poem is itself a single sentence, divided into eight stanzas, and is essentially composed of parataxically juxtaposed nouns and noun clauses commenting on those nouns, separated by commas until a single period brings the poem to a close. One gets the feeling of something cut up, stretched out, retracting, foreshortening itself, The sentence feels like the remainder, the residue of an aborted or impossible narration or relation, gnomic, 
quickly scribbled notes, hopes for a poem, a private aid memoir, understandable only to the one who took them. Here you have the idea of these broken or ragged fragments becoming a whole and becoming clearer, perhaps purely through their juxtaposition. This reference to parataxis, you know, the idea of just placing images side by side or deeds side by side without really commenting on their relationship with one another seemed to me quite crucial in terms of what Zatelli was up to. You know, she'd gathered these tales and placed them side by side without necessarily being so concerned with how they hang together in terms of a greater meaning, but more interested in the way that they might chime with each other almost musically. It's really bound up with uh, the, the subtitle of the novel itself, which says a, a novel in ten tales, this kind of arrangement of parts and, and fragments. What I'm also really, really interested in is that obviously the, the ten tales that form the novel then are instantly reflected in this opening quote that you've just read out as the ten, the ten dogs. For me, what's, what's so interesting about what she does throughout the whole novel is it never is decided, it never settles on, on one or the other. You know, dog or wolf or, or tale or novel is, is quite an interesting, perhaps the, the novel being the kind of modern form par excellence within writing and then the, the tale as the folk tale or the... A mythological tale and these things sit in i certainly wouldn't say harmony but they sit in relation to each other and the book seems to draw an incredible amount of power from that that relation i was also thinking about something that you've already said to me the kind of latin phrase um between dog and wolf and i think that's a really very apt description of the book i'll say it incorrectly but interlupum et canum between the wolf and the dog, or the other way around sometimes, is a term for twilight. And something we both noticed about the original title of this book is that the English translation, while it's perhaps accurate, it doesn't quite capture what the original Greek captures and and indeed most of the translations into European languages. I saw that the direct translation from the Greek of the, the title of this novel is with the light of the wolf they return and we'll return to this well <laughs> excuse the pun we'll return to the theme of wolf later as it does crop up repeatedly but that suddenly you know jumped out at me and so i looked at the greek and it's a language i don't speak and a script i can't read but with some extremely rudimentary uh, translation it became apparent that the word for twilight contains within itself the words for light and the word for wolf and it seems like an absolutely literal translation of that word would be wolf-like. After you mentioned it to me, I, I actually looked it, looked it up, and the, the word for twilight apparently is something like lykophos, and obviously you can hear leek-like, like lycanthrope, and phos for light is in phosphorescence and phosphor and so on. It definitely, when you, when you put it together, it con- contains those two elements. So yeah, another another thing I was thinking about as we're revisiting the book, this point at which it stands between two things. I was very interested in the figure of St Paul. It appears every so often. Uh, in the most important respect is that the inn is described to us, and this even the inn seems to have this mythological property, in that supposedly 
St Paul stays in the inn and it gains notoriety because of that. But St Paul himself, I thought, was a really interesting choice because of his position preaching throughout Greece and, and ancient Greece, of course, and the fact that historically it seems that almost certainly he would have spoken Greek as his first language. And he's responsible for a lot of conversion within Greece and so holds um, this incredibly important role as you know one of the first people to spread Christianity and also start to standardise and institutionalise the church. So as a figure, he really, for me, stands at the point absolutely between a religious history, which we can trace the lineage right up to the present day, and then a kind of like ancient Greek paganism. And those strands, to me, feel incredibly important within the book. So that's one of the many uneasy dualities that seem to exist in the book. This idea of being between two states of being, you know, this twilight that perhaps forms a kind of central motif of the book is really apparent in the historical moment of this book. You know, it is the end of one century, the beginning of another, and does seem to be a moment when the the modern world is kind of encroaching upon and almost filtering out this ancient world that the community at least still seems to have some kind of connection to but it's definitely losing it you know I'm thinking of things like the first chapter or the first tale in the book is called the first slaughtering and it concerns the ritual slaughter of a lamb that every boy in the in the village is required to take part in it seems to be a symbol of his passage into manhood but Zatelli writes that it was an act that symbolized any number of things both obvious and inscrutable so i got this sense that while the community observed these sort of ancient rituals that they had almost lost connection with their meaning to such a degree that they were performing them almost by rote or with a degree of emptiness and indeed it forms part of the conflict in that chapter that some of the characters seem to view this ritual as slightly barbaric and Hesychios, who is the young boy required to perform this ritual at the time, bursts into tears and runs away from the family and is treated with both sympathy and derision by different members of the community. So you get this sense of a impasse of values or a clash of values between the old world and the new. And that definitely seems to tie in with what you're saying about this being at the crossroads of, of two things. The really kind of beautiful device where Zatelli describes for us a photograph of the entire huge extended family and then the the chapter goes on to describe in in detail the taking of that photograph and for me that was an amazing blend of quite a modernist trope to to describe a photograph and to kind of like create this hybrid thing of of this captured moment at one remove but then also the, the kind of folk tale that then spins out from this photograph was a really amazing thing to then, to then happen. And that, for me, absolutely encapsulates what you were saying, the, the kind of high technology. And it's almost strange that this photograph appears because prior to that, although you are told some dates, or actually I think maybe you're only told a date once in the entire book, the events could be happening at almost any time. It's quite hard to place, but the photograph certainly does place it this strange transition almost as if some photograph had been unearthed of mythological figures like a a photograph of Odysseus or something like this 
somehow the the excitement of the transition to a new medium of recording and of course the previous medium would certainly have been storytelling and, and the kind of tradition of oral histories but I was also really interested in the fact that well the book historically but also more generally stands at this point of transition it's certainly not a linear transition within the book itself we're not moving from one to another for me anyways the telly seems to be suggesting that they both somehow live within each other retrospectively and going forwards Within this non-linear narrative, it certainly felt to me like it was echoed by this very broad, but also certainly not linear family tree. And there's a huge, huge number of kind of cross-generational marriages. Perhaps the most obvious is that between Fibronia and Hesychios. So Hesychios first meets Fibronia's daughter, has a child by her. She then consequently takes her own life. Fibronia joins with various mothers of these uh, these women who've been seduced by Hesychios and have died or gone mad and they've been left with Hesychios's children. So originally Fibronia is part of this band of, of women who hate Hesychios but inevitably falls in love with him and they then become a couple and marry and so that's certainly one of them. But there's all these constant interlinked marriages and, and romances that cross generations. And for me, that was a large part of like, Satelli suggesting that these narratives really aren't linear at all. The book does take the form of a family saga, but rather than conforming to any of the conventions of a book like that, it well, not only refuses to do so, but it actively perverts them. It's not the rise and fall of a family there's nothing teleological about it and it doesn't move towards any kind of grand moment of climax or um, as you mentioned to me focusing on one generation before moving on to the next but instead jumps around in time to such a degree that we quite often learn of the death of a character before we spend any time with them we might spend a long time on the the scene of a character's death, you know, a really dramatic or emotionally fraught scene, only for that character to sort of reappear a couple of paragraphs later or in the next chapter, alive and well once again. It's definitely playing with uh, narrative structure, and I absolutely agree that it's really linked to the structure of the family itself. And Zatelli is quite self-conscious about this, I think. She makes reference to this the beginning of the third chapter, she writes that we are envious of a distant deity, perhaps Kali, perhaps some other, at least as we see her in one of her mythical depictions, in which sprouting out of each shoulder are 15 arms, each one doing something different, and all of them converging. A privilege of this sort would help us, so we believe, to easily combine 30 stories, if not 30 then even more, in one, and would reduce the danger that often threatens us of getting lost in the labyrinthine paths of narration, or of remaining with the thrill and incredible dismay of a beginning without an end, that is, of a consummate though ineffectual endeavour. So, almost in... 18th century Henry Fielding style, our narrator interjects and has this kind of ironic distance to the tale that she's telling. There's a really, really, for me, like a really beautiful line 
When Zitelli talks about Christophorus and Persa, his third wife, and the fact that they have both him and his wife have been married three times, uh, or it, they're both on their third marriage, basically. And she writes that it's a kind of symmetry you don't even find in embroidery patterns, because an object that needs to be understood as a, as a whole, something like a piece of embroidery which has a has a front and a back to it you know the, you could turn a, a piece of embroidery over and you would you would see the stitches that aren't meant to be seen and the, the kind of messiness of the back and there's also of course something about this classic metaphor of a kind of fabric of time but it it feels like it has to be understood as a whole that the parts are integral I feel that, yeah, one of the most interesting points of this kind of non-linearity is, is the kind of introduction of the character of Cliche. And exactly as you said earlier, she's a perfect example of a character who's brought in and we know almost nothing about her. She's been described in passing as someone who ends up looking after Hesychios's many children. And then the next thing we learn about her is, is a kind of tragic death as the inn burns down and she's trapped inside. And only at this moment does the chapter then unfold and she's suddenly brought to life as this incredibly rich character. And this is also the moment where the novel perhaps shifts registers slightly. We really understand her as a, as a fully rounded character with, with an inner life. There's both a mix of non-lilianity but also the, the novel form and the, the kind of like mythic or folktale forms. Cliche transforms over this chapter, I think. I mean, everything we've heard about her before this point has been somehow related to her domestic duties. She's Christophoros's stepdaughter, and the bringing up of the family's multiple children is been kind of entrusted to her and so she feeds the children bathes them and so on and seemed not to have considered herself ever as someone who could be loved it seems like the world around her has been content to let her exist without being looked at or noticed as a person in her own right and these duties that are entrusted to her have kind of swallowed her personality but all that changes when marcos the the hunter arrives in the in the hotel and she begins to fall desperately in love with him at that point her inner life kind of explodes into something again of a, a kind of mythical quality in her torments at night she has these psychedelic dreams of serpents and pluto and a, a boatman rowing her across a silver lake and the register of this chapter as you said completely shifts it has the drama of an of an epic narrative but it's really a, a set piece in its own right at times it becomes almost melodramatic after Cliche's death the hunter returns and his grief is so monumental that he returns like a phantom on his on his horse not speaking a word to anyone and people are so moved by his pain that they stand aside to let him pass so it's this moment of high tragedy in the middle of quite generally humorous depictions of female characters. The general shift of the book or direction of it in, in terms of its treatment of female characters is to move from the comic to the tragic. Certainly with Cliche and with Fibronia, who has the tragedy of her romantic engagement with Hesychius hanging over her and becomes this kind of damned 
woman as time goes on. And likewise with both Julia's, both the younger and the older. But it certainly seems, and perhaps this is intrinsic to this tragedy, but the, the female characters certainly seem to be the most fleshed out or the most well-rounded it becomes more and more apparent as the as the book goes on. One really striking example of the reader being a very much an insider when it comes to the female characters is the chapter where Christophorus takes the elder Julia to the hospital in town and we suddenly leave the village for a chapter and, and go into a sort of much more metropolitan area. And Christophorus shows himself to be a rather absent-minded guardian and preoccupied with his own matters and he leaves Julia alone when he should be watching her and there's this quite horrible moment where Julia is accosted by an older man who speaks this strange dialect using seer instead of hear what's your dad thinking of leaving one like ye all alone said a voice familiar to her Aren't ye scared? It was that seer again. Seer himself, and none other. Ha <laughs> ha! He said, carefully pulling aside some of the lower branches that were in his way. Seer, I'm the boss, like we said. Look, hey ye! Seer, psst! Yellow face, hey, death face! Seer, seer, I'm telling you, look! Out of instinct, she was ashamed to look, and turned her eyes away, blinking like someone blind who is told to wake up. Yet she couldn't help but see a small silver disc that shone between his long, dark fingers, a brand new coin that he was playing with like a mirror in the sun to dazzle her, while with his other hand, with the entire palm of his hand, he made big, slow circles over the hollow of his belly circles that got continually smaller, smaller and lower, till suddenly, how did it happen? From out of his palm there appeared something blue and brown like a hanged man's tongue, like the impudent head of a tortoise, like the wailing of an alley cat. Her surprise slowly yet completely inundated her, as when you throw a little red paint into a pot of hot water, it ate away at her. This, coupled with her inexpressible fear, and the unusual composure it required of her to understand and link those two gestures through the branches, the enticing coin, and the other, even if there was no hope whatsoever on the horizon, caused her cheeks to turn red, deep red. And they were never red, not even before she fell ill. And she felt that the hair was starting to grow again on her head, but hard hair, prickling her like needles. She suddenly turned round to the front and jumped down from the wall without taking anything into account. It was as though she had suddenly been cast out of the clouds. The branches shook again furiously, madly, as though this man behind them wanted to make arms of them in order to catch her. My daddy's coming, she shrieked in panic. Perhaps she even wanted to protect him. When I read this passage, and this might be a slightly tenuous link, but I, I was immediately reminded of the Nausicaa chapter in, in Ulysses, in which Leopold Bloom 
masturbates on the beach over Gertie McDowell, this lame girl. And in Joyce's depiction of this moment, we remain firmly in Bloom's consciousness. But here the roles are reversed and we're, we're, we're closer to the bewildered consciousness of this sick girl. The reader is left in some doubt as to what exactly has, has happened here. The prose becomes very vague. It's just vague enough to convey the confusion that Julius experiences but i think the sinister nature of it is quite clear it's a reversal of what joyce does and it's kind of very much rooted in the feminine experience there certainly seems to be a sympathy with the female characters and their point of view to be able to see things through their eyes i was also thinking about the character of fibronia and how, perhaps quite specifically as a woman, she's oppressed by her mythic qualities. And so she's, yeah, she's somehow hard done by, by the very fact that she has idealised. Uh, I'm thinking, obviously, of, of her unending fecundity. She has this role as someone who's constantly giving birth, which in a mythological way, you know, suggests this mother, earth, goddess kind of thing. There's certainly plenty of, of female characters within folklore who, who do have this endlessly fertile position. But what Zatelli does, which I find really interesting, is actually shows quite how brutal that would be as a reality. Fibronia almost prays at one point, pregnant in her late 40s, I think, that this will be the last child that she's absolutely exhausted by this process of, of constantly giving birth. And Hesychios remembered some tales that she herself had told them about motherly love. Some awe-inspiring tales. In one of them, the most widespread and well-known, one son, in order to prove to a woman that he loves her more than any other in the world, even more than the woman who bore him, slaughters his mother and takes her heart, takes it as a present to his beloved, the shrew who was waiting. On the way, he stumbles and falls into a ditch, bloodies his face, and the heart of the mother whom he murdered stirs alive again and asks with all her eternal love and tenderness, Have you hurt yourself, my child? It's been the kind of centre of her being somehow, and when the family is is forced to move to this lake town, Fabronia beats her son. Yes, uh, in a really, really horrific passage. As her state of her mental health has deteriorated to the most horrific degree. And once that role of hers has disappeared or she can no longer conform to it, she seems to have absolutely nowhere to go because all she has been throughout her entire life is this sort of symbol of fertility what we actually see at this moment of the book is someone who has never been allowed to be anything else she's never been allowed to dream and is in fact a kind of lost lonely woman driven to the brink of suicide so things become very very tragic at this moment when before she's been treated as this robust problem-solving almost comic character you know i had fabronia in mind most of all when i was thinking about that direction from comic to tragic
Another element, of course, of the elder Julia's story is the romance that she has with Kimon and the fact that she initially rejects him twice and then realises that she is in fact in love with him. Sits in vain waiting for him to make his third attempt to woo her but instead he kills himself and this tragedy over overshadows her. But perhaps one of the most interesting parts for me of, of this is again a, a slight shift into folklore. Although we know that perhaps the reason Kimon has hung himself is because of his unrequited love. Most other characters in the book believe it's because he suffers from these terrible headaches. It says it was no common headache but the wolf. And whenever he suffered an attack by the wolf, there were no more songs for Kimon or painkillers. And in a note she writes, Wolf referred at the time to an illness for which they had as yet found no more appropriate name. Some had the wolf in their bellies, other in their stomachs, others in their heads, others in their chests. Later, it was given the name cancer. The fact that it's cancer is, is for me, very interesting as, as a disease, which has certainly been relatively recently understood and is obviously, of course, one of the uh, most frequent causes of death uh, as other diseases have been eradicated. So it seems like a very modern ailment but here mixed with with a certain folklore that the understanding of it is better put through this analogy with with a wolf. Wolves seem to play the role of being a kind of vessel for all things that are ill understood or have some kind of malign influence on on the community. For example, at a moment when the Balkan Wars break out, we have to make assumptions here because there are no dates given but I suppose this would be the Balkan Wars breaking out in 1912. And we have the arrival of these Slavic soldiers in the village who actually come to occupy the family home and force the family into exile in this lake town of Gulgi. But alongside all of this is a description of how these wars cause wolves to be driven into the surrounding region in such numbers that they are devouring all the sheep and are so satiated, as uh, Teddy writes, that now they only bit on the lamb's neck and then left them, and that the streets, the cobbled ways, the paths to the mountain were cluttered with dead and half-dead lambs, some of which were still bleating. Yeah, so it seemed to me that these wolves weren't being described literally, but were actually so closely aligned with the soldiers or perhaps soldiers and and refugees from the Balkan Wars as to be almost the same thing understood in in sort of metaphorical terms by the community. I think it might be worth remembering as well that at the time of this book's publication, uh, which is 1993, the Yugoslav Wars are actually in full effect so you can imagine how this may have been on the author's mind at the time and we can understand how this might be an important moment in national historical memory which would be on people's minds at at the time. As with almost any theme of the book, any of the kind of ideas that Zatelli touches on, there did seem to be a counterpoint, something that existed there and for me it was very much present in the story of the younger Julia who as a kind of invalid struck down by this mysterious illness states one day that she wishes to go and see the hares play in the moonlight it's really really beautiful scene as the family crawl closer and closer to see these hares playing they suddenly realize that in fact they're not hares at all 
but they're, they're young wolves playing. So already you have this strange playful element mixed with, with the fear that they might be spotted by these wolves. But later, when Fibronia is thinking back to this event that's just taken place, Satelli writes, Wolves, when their time comes, appear on all sides, and their eyes are shiny and penetrating like nothing, nothing else. Wolves, not with their accustomed attributes, not necessarily as enemies, but as pawned memories of that tender wakefulness that is mightier than the sword and is feared by those who fear to exist. This idea of pawned memories... There may be something else to this metaphor of the of the wolf. Obviously, something about memories and, and how that's transmitted, something about memories and death and how these things are preserved. A certain inevitability, perhaps? The idea of pawning, I suppose, it is such a strange formulation. It instantly suggests that there's a certain value to these memories, which can be exchanged in some way, passed on to someone else, and then, of course, reclaimed. But then the other thing about... Uh, pawn shop would be that someone else could then take it on in terms of memory a very strange exchange going on and and something perhaps losing value along the way and changing hands but also a recycling or a, a, a reuse a kind of second-hand nature all of which of course overshadowed by this metaphor of the wolf which seems here to have far more to do with death perhaps especially in the context of the story as uh, julia decides that she wants to go and see the hares, we find out from this kind of internal monologue. Because a very early memory of her childhood, she sees them before, and says uh, someone next to her raised his arms in supplication and says, let my heart stop now, I can't endure any more. And this was the first time she had ever seen anyone want to die. It was then this vivid or deep recollection that led little Julia to suddenly ask one evening to be taken again to the hares. So there's this incredible tragedy of this young girl really wishing to die because she's seemingly in so much pain or, or can't live with this illness. Returning to this idea of pawned memories and their relationship with the wolves that they see, that perhaps Zitelli's trying to look at both sides of the coin, this idea of death and move away from an idea of it being purely negative. I've just been pondering over this idea of tender wakefulness, just going back to that quote. Do you feel that this could refer to a kind of vision of, of what life is, you know, the idea of being sort of awake to life, that that's why it's feared somehow? Being awake to life might, by necessity, be a life which acknowledged death within it, as an aside, perhaps I'm quite aware of this, having recently got back from Mexico, which has a very interesting and clearly pre-Hispanic influence on the on the kind of society's relationship with death. But it seems very, very different from um, certainly a, like a Protestant Christian idea of death, this kind of finality. But a life which is able to take within itself an idea of death certainly seems to me like something which would be feared by those who fear to exist. I was thinking in that respect, the death of Kimon, which I mentioned earlier, in that section of the book, Christophorus walks with friends to see Kimon's body and, and go to a kind of wake. And Christophorus is mainly preoccupied with the fact that the blame for the death might be laid at his door because he thinks everyone will understand that he killed himself because his love for Julia wasn't returned. And there's a very strange conversation going on between other 
friends of Christophorus, and one of them is absolutely obsessed in terms of death with this idea of what you see at the moment of death. And this character says, that's what I'd like just one person to tell me one time. Not why we die or what happens afterwards. What we see at that moment. What's the last image? And so this is, this is strange and it seems to have an awful lot of meaning. Only on my second sort of reading of the book, returning to make the, make the notes for this programme, did I realise that actually in a, in a really incredible way, Satelli actually does this. The final closing moments of the book are Christophorus passing away. And Cecily writes, He saw in a wearisome yet fleeting dream that he became a crumb and the birds ate him. But the last image he saw was when the crumb had gone and the birds flew away. And so she literally, in, in kind of an unambiguous way, is, is telling you exactly what the, the last image Christophorus sees before he dies. Again, it's it's very dense and certainly gnomic in a in a sense but for me there's a, a circularity there to be something that's eaten and and taken back in but the fact that she make makes a big thing of the fact that the crumb was gone but he sees the birds fly away it's very powerful but i struggle to know exactly what she's trying to say it's almost like the relinquishing of subjectivity right that you are this thing that is getting devoured but then because there is there is no subject any longer to be you pass outside of it and see what you were almost you know the soul sort of exits the body or whatever that's how i see it do you know that wonderful description of death in nabokov's transparent things describes it this way not the crude anguish of physical death but the incomparable pangs of the mysterious mental maneuver needed to pass from one state of being into another and that strikes me as, as what's kind of going on here Would you recommend this book? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really could, almost couldn't recommend it highly enough. It's um, it's a beautiful book, but it's certainly imposing. It's um, there's an awful lot of it, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it's it's not a incredibly difficult read, and it's unbelievably rewarding. It's something I will definitely definitely return to. I mean, I, I almost wanted to pick it up straight after reading it and coming back to it to make the notes for this episode has has been such a joy to realise. How many incredible little markers and circular things and, and bits that return there are there. And I must have missed plenty more, so it's certainly something I'll re- return to. What, what about yourself? Yeah, well, I'll certainly be coming back to this book again. It's something that you just know is going to reward rereading. I think it's gloriously ambitious, so deftly carried off and and the translator deserves a mention here i think because one of the reasons it feels so organic is the beauty and fluidity of the english version of this book We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any comments or questions about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, you can write us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Sherds Podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more shows you may enjoy.